Okay, Jimmy Carter, look, he was a nice man. He was a terrible president. And I know the resilience of our Constitution and the strength, the strength of our nation, as does President Carter, who I spoke with last night, who cannot be with us today, but whom we salute for his lifetime and service. A terrible president or a noble man with a lifetime in service? As usual, retrospectives are written along partisan lines, but Jimmy Carter is somewhat of an exception. Carter has been demonized in Republican circles as one of the worst presidents to ever hold office. Nice guy, lousy leader. Likewise, he's been shunned by Democrats who refuse to pick up the torch to defend his tenure. Better left in the past. For his part, Jimmy Carter simply didn't play the game. He spent precious little time defending his presidency or attempting to burnish his image. He didn't immediately embark upon a revisionist campaign. He simply retreated into private life and used his stature to promote peace, build shelters for the poor, and offer his thoughts in numerous books and interviews, but never with the intent to write a historical inaccuracy or rehabilitate his legacy. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs he started a podcast Another basic white guy who he started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast I'm Chapter 6, Carter on the World Stage With the economy seemingly back on track and a major victory under his belt with the newly minted Panama Canal Treaty, everything seemed possible under Carter's steady hand. Faith was restored in the Oval Office, and the only complaint the press could muster was that the new president was dull. But after the turbulent 60s and the Nixon years, the country was ready for Carter's brand of dull. While there was the normal tension on Carter's team, most notably between polar opposites Brzezinski and Vance, for the most part, the Georgians were making nice and finding their way with the big fish in D.C. Carter's domestic agenda was on fire, and the Democratic Party was slowly falling in line with the president's expectations. Midway through his second year in office, with so much left to accomplish on the domestic front, however, Carter seemed preoccupied by the siren song of foreign policy, as many had warned. It's hard to impress how much of a gamble the Panama Treaty was due to the lack of enthusiasm on both sides of the aisle. So the victory gave Carter a taste of what it's like to be viewed in positive terms by the rest of the world. Suddenly, everything seemed possible, and the world was in reach. But trouble was brewing within the Democratic ranks. As Carter peered out over the world, he overlooked a prominent Democrat with his own agenda and his own timetable. Just five years prior to this period, Senator Ted Kennedy had introduced a comprehensive national health care bill that would have transformed health care in this country in ways that Bernie Sanders would approve. Kennedy's single-payer scheme would have been the death knell for private insurers and set the country on a path that mirrored the rest of the world. But the timing just wasn't right. But now, with a Democratic majority in both houses and a president who seemed capable of negotiating sensitive legislation, Kennedy believed his time had arrived. So in July of 1978, he reintroduced his bill, and it was widely assumed that Carter would carry the water in the White House as he'd done with the energy bill. 
Only Carter wasn't interested in doing the bidding of the famous senator, nor was he interested in adding to the federal deficit, saying, quote, I'm not going to destroy my credibility on inflation and budgetary matters, end quote. While it is true that it would have expanded the deficit and wreaked havoc in the healthcare marketplace, Kennedy's legislation probably wouldn't have had the negative inflationary impact that Carter believed it would. Plus, as we noted in the previous episode, Carter was far more conservative and a supporter of market-based solutions. Rather than punt entirely on an issue that wasn't all that close to him, Carter negotiated a watered-down version of the bill that would preserve a role for private insurers and phase in government options over time. Kennedy was having none of it. After months of back and forth, the two men agreed to meet in the White House to discuss their differences. And at the meeting, Kennedy made an impassioned plea to the president to reconsider his stance, and Carter agreed to pause and further reflect so long as they maintained confidentiality between the two of them and worked out their differences behind closed doors. Now, according to the Carter team, the two men shook on this understanding, at which point Kennedy left the White House and promptly held a press conference lambasting Carter for inaction. Needless to say, this did not go over well in the Carter camp. From this point forward, all pretense of working together was pretty much thrown out the window. And with that, the stage was set for a battle to come two years later for the presidency itself, and the American people would wind up with nothing on the healthcare front. Meanwhile, the world beckoned. While Carter continued to battle his own party over domestic priorities, he was privately signaling a much bigger policy play that would alter the course of history. Just a few years prior, Brzezinski drafted a report for, quote, a return to the June 1967 borders, full Arab recognition of the Israeli state, and either an independent Palestinian state or a Palestinian entity federated with Jordan, end quote. Critically, Egypt's President Anwar Sadat was keen to reclaim territory lost in the 67 war to Israel with an opening for economic and diplomatic recognition of Israel. The opening was too tempting for Carter to ignore, particularly because of the importance this area of the world played in Carter's faith. Israel was desperate for recognition and cared little about the desert land in Sinai relative to the possibility of normalized trade with an Arab power. Of course, it was understood that peace in the Middle East was a moonshot, to put it mildly. As the historian Lawrence Wright noted, quote, it was a paradox. Nothing could be a greater gift to Israel than peace, and nothing was more politically dangerous for an American politician trying to achieve it, end quote. The 67 war shocked the world when Israel quickly defeated Egypt, Syria, and Jordan to take control of the Sinai Peninsula, Gaza, Golan Heights, and the West Bank. The victory threw the Middle East into complete chaos with the United Nations taking up a resolution calling for the return of the occupied territories. Let's just say that Israel declined. One of the sticky subjects was the matter of the Palestinian people who were suddenly living predominantly in the occupied lands but had no recognized government or precise border claims. On paper and in principle, the Arab nations called for an independent Palestinian state, but more often than not, they used the Palestinian people as a pawn in their own games. Even the UN Resolution 242 stopped short of calling for a Palestinian state, instead calling for an outline of a roadmap toward one. Against all of these impossible odds, Carter opened up a dialogue between Israel and Egypt, and he invited Israel's conservative prime minister, Menachem Begin, and Egypt's President Sadat to Camp David to begin the process. In 1978, a little over a year after taking office, 
President Jimmy Carter invited Sadat and Israel's Prime Minister Menachem Begin to his retreat at Camp David, Maryland. Serving as an intermediary, Carter worked with each leader separately to draft two dual accord documents in a secretive 12-day process. The document stipulated that Israel give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. In exchange, Egypt would give Israel permission to use the Suez Canal for trade. Egypt also agreed to recognize Israel as a country. What's interesting is that while Carter was beginning to lay out his plans in the open, Kissinger and Nixon had already opened back-channel communications with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO, as early as 1969, and their work through the mid-1970s had realistically created the groundwork for possible talks in the future. The Camp David Accords would last just shy of two weeks and prove to be the most difficult period of Carter's young presidency. Sadat and Begin couldn't be more different and could barely stand to be in the same room, leading Carter to shuffle back and forth between cottages on the grounds. As Kai Bird writes in Outlier, Sadat's position was pretty straightforward. Quote, everything was possible, said Sadat, if we can get the land occupied since 1967, end quote. But Sadat was in treacherous territory where the other Arab states were concerned. He'd already gone it alone in appearing before the Knesset prior to Camp David. And while he was met with somewhat of an open ear, he didn't have enough to offer to the Israelis to make a unilateral deal. But Sadat was indeed a dealmaker and quickly built a close relationship with Carter, whom he viewed as an honest broker. As the leader of Israel's closest political and economic ally with the United Nations behind him, Carter brought a lot to the table, more than Sadat ever could alone. Begin, on the other hand, proved to be the tougher nut to crack. He and Carter simply didn't get along. Begin had a tendency to lecture the president. Again, Bird. Quote, Begin even objected to the use of the term Palestinian people, insisting we are also Palestinians. Begin lectured the president about why the language in UN Resolution 242 could not be part of any Camp David Accords, and why he could not abandon any of the Israeli settlements in the Sinai. The real obstacle was any deal on the West Bank. End quote. When Begin rose to power in Israel as the head of the conservative Likud party, it marked a permanent shift in Israeli politics. Israel was dug in. The hardliners who'd fought in 48 through multiple Arab-Israeli skirmishes and the 1967 war were determined to not only maintain their territorial gains, but to press further into the occupied territories. To them, there was no going back. On the other side of the equation, there was no credible entity in the eyes of the Western world with which to negotiate. As Brzezinski cautioned the president in his briefing, quote, the PLO is not even a government in exile, and they ask for too much from a position of weakness, end quote. Over the next 13 days and multiple threats of walkouts, an exhausted Carter finally brought a rough draft of two separate agreements across the finish line, or so he thought. One of the enduring anecdotes is how Carter finally broke through to Begin, who was literally packing up his cabin with his entourage and heading home without a deal. Here's Carter in his own words. The 13 days brought uh, a steady, uh, tedious, laborious, most often discouraging uh, incremental move uh, toward agreement. The uh, high spots, unfortunately, were those uh, crisis moments when either Begin or Sadat announced that they were leaving, that they were giving up in uh, hopelessness and uh, animosity and disgust. And then I had to induce them to stay for a few more hours or maybe another day and, and give me a chance to find some common ground. Uh, on one occasion when Begin was uh, completely uh, committed to leave, uh, 
I carried some photographs of his grandchildren over. And I had found the name of all eight grandchildren. I had written them on the photograph. Uh, Begin looked at him in a perfunctory way. And then he saw the name of his uh, little children uh, whom he loved. And, and, and we started talking about our grandchildren and how the world might affect them adversely if we couldn't find peace. He changed his mind and decided to stay. Begin did stay, and Carter pressed Sadat into doing the same. The three men came up with two separate agreements and side letters together referred to as, quote, a framework for peace in the Middle East. While it ultimately offered both Israel and Egypt important concessions that Sadat had originally envisioned, it would remain mostly a framework, and it would hardly usher in peace in the Middle East. Too many Arab states were excluded from the discussions, and the UN balked at the proposal as well because they weren't involved. Here are the critical parts of the agreement. The status of Jerusalem, negotiated in a side letter at Camp David, would remain murky with both Palestinians and Israelis claiming it is their capital. Egypt would recognize Israel as a nation and engage in trade. Israel would relinquish to Egypt the Sinai territory taken in the 67 war. Recognition of the rights of Palestinian people with a path forward to set up autonomous governments in the West Bank and Gaza. Vague language regarding timetables for Israel's withdrawal of forces from the occupied territories. A loose commitment to adhere to the boundaries set by UN Resolution 242. In the end, the Accords were probably more notable for what was excluded. While there was language regarding the rights of Palestinians, it was couched in nebulous terms and relied on Knesset approval, continuing dialogue with the United Nations, and a prominent role for Jordan. But Jordan was excluded from the talks and therefore had no interest in complying with the loose agreement and the side letters negotiated without its involvement. There was also no specific path forward to resettle the Palestinian refugees who were spread out throughout Jordan, Syria, and other neighboring countries. The biggest omission, which would be a source of contention ever since the Accords, was the fate of Israeli settlements in the West Bank specifically. Every side left with a different impression of the negotiations and the meaning behind the side letters. Here's Byrd, quote, Begin did not want a peace with the Palestinians. He wanted a separate peace with Egypt, taking the only major Arab military power off the battlefield. But in the West Bank, he wanted the land. In this sense, Camp David may have been Carter's greatest diplomatic triumph, but it was Begin's greatest subterfuge. Within weeks of Camp David, Begin announced that his government intended to build 18 to 20 new settlements in the West Bank over the next five years. Carter was furious, end quote. Begin would return home a hero. The land in the Sinai was important to Israel for its access to waterways, which Israel received as a result of the agreement anyway. More importantly, it had taken a huge step forward with diplomatic recognition by a key Arab state and open trade agreements that would allow it to boost its economy. But mostly, it was that vague language regarding Palestinian rights and the status of settlements that made Begin triumphant in the eyes of Israelis. The side letters were just ignored completely. Within days of his return to Israel, Begin announced the construction of new settlements, as we said, over the next few years, and the Jewish population in the West Bank rose from 5,000 to 24,000 under his term. Quote, as Carter feared, the settlements would poison his greatest diplomatic triumph, noted Byrd. Sadat's fate was far more bleak. Shunned by his allies and thrown out of the Arab League for going rogue, Sadat became increasingly isolated. Three years after the Accords and being awarded the Nobel Prize with Begin, Sadat was gunned down at a parade. Armed militants within the government 
hit Sadat with 37 bullets in retaliation for what they viewed as the ultimate betrayal. Chapter 7. Fallows's Parapetea. January 1979. Inflation, 9.3%. Unemployment, 5.9%. Carter's approval is 50%. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. Carter's foreign policy team continued to pick up Kissinger's pieces all over the world. Brzezinski, in particular, was determined to set himself apart from the controversial Kissinger, who frequently undermined him to the press. In early 1978, Zibig conducted under-the-radar meetings with Deng Xiaoping and was enthusiastically promoting China throughout the White House upon his return, prompting Carter to accuse him of being seduced. But the breakthrough was real, and in short order, the United States and China formally opened diplomatic and trade relations thus ushering in the modern economic era. But for as much as 1979 was brimming with promise, the world was slowly beginning to unravel. It has become more difficult to look at the scope of opposition to the Shah of Iran and still see his monarchy surviving. The Ayatollahs are committed to the ouster of the Shah and nothing less than that. They chant Magba Shah, death to the Shah. The new prime minister has gone some liberal political distance beyond the Shah, but not likely far enough to suit the anti-Shah religious establishment or members of the political opposition. The Shah and his empress left shortly before midday. The empire he had hoped to build had been shattered by a year of violence. The news spread with the speed of the human shout. Shah Ferrari Shodeh, the people cried. The Shah has escaped. The old chant of death to the Shah was replaced today by a new one, death to Carter. Mohammad Rezid Pahlavi, better known as the Shah of Iran, enjoyed a long dictatorial tenure during which he sought to make Iran a major economic player on the international stage. He had the support of Western allies in particular, who safeguarded his time as leader. In 1978, however, with unrest among youths growing in the streets, the Shah's military opened fire on protesters in Tehran. Religious fervor had already captivated many of the youth in Iran's cities, and the right-wing clerics seized upon this horrific event to stoke the flames of unrest. By the end of the year, the Shah's position and grip on power became untenable, and the exiled leader of the religious right, Ruhollah Khomeini, known as the Ayatollah Khomeini, returned triumphantly from exile to take power and turn the government of Iran into an Islamic theocracy. The Shah's ouster shocked the world and unfortunately caught the Carter administration completely off guard. We'll return to this crucial part of the story shortly, but the important takeaway here is the utter failure of the intelligence community to grasp what was happening on the ground. Carter looked even more out of touch having recently hosted the Shah in the United States and calling him a trusted friend. Now, ironically, behind the scenes, Carter had been the Shah's harshest critic compared to previous administrations. Because Carter had crafted his foreign policy around a humanitarian first principle, he admonished the Shah from the start for wielding too heavy of a hand. An important historical note about the Shah's relationship with the United States is the extremely close relationship between him and the members of the Trilateral Commission, David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger being chief among them. While Carter turned his attention elsewhere, Rockefeller and Kissinger would begin a covert campaign to protect their interest behind Carter's back. 
Carter's problems at home and abroad were beginning to mount. Inflation was proving to be a real issue, and the trouble in Iran wasn't helping matters. Across the globe, the economy was cooling off, and Carter's insistence on tightening the belt domestically wasn't helping matters. In just a few short months, the administration went from the high of the Camp David Accords, domestic legislative successes, and the opening of relations with China, to playing defense on several fronts. The Washington press corps wasn't helping either. In their relentless pursuit of scandal, they were beginning to tire of the president's squeaky clean image and started looking for trouble whenever and wherever possible. And because the good old boys in particular didn't fit into the Catherine Graham-style Washington mold, they were constantly being picked apart in the gossip and opinion pages. And it was wearing them down. Between inflation, another gas crisis due to the Iranian revolution, Z-Big and Vance sniping at each other, and unemployment beginning to creep, the president's numbers were flagging. And then, the beginning of the end came in an article penned by a former ally and employee in the White House, who broke everyone's heart and spirit. In May of 1979, an article appeared in The Atlantic titled The Passionless Presidency. It was written by former staffer and speechwriter James Fallows. Fallows was a young journalist who was wooed by a friend to join Carter's team. While not his first choice for a career, the upside was undeniable, and so he put his career on hold to join the executive team. And Fallows was well-liked by everyone, including Carter, which made his critique that much more devastating. In our frenetic 24-7 news cycle today, it's hard to appreciate how much weight a single article could carry. But it helped cement in the public's mind what was going on behind the scenes in the White House, and it would haunt the Carter team for the rest of their lives. Fallows believed that he was simply doing his job after leaving the White House just a few months earlier. He was a witness. This was a first-hand account, and it was his obligation. The piece did start off with extremely positive characterizations of Jimmy Carter, the man. Quote, After two and a half years in Carter's service, I fully believe him to be a good man. With his moral virtues and his intellectual skills, he is perhaps as admirable a human being as has ever held the job. He is probably smarter, in the college board sense, than any other president in this century. He grasps issues quickly. He made me feel confident that, except in economics, he would resolve technical questions lucidly, without distortions imposed by can't or imperfect comprehension. End quote. Quote, in his ability to do justice case by case, he would be the ideal non-lawyer for the Supreme Court. If I had to choose one politician to sit at the pearly gates and pass judgment, on my soul, Jimmy Carter would be the one. End quote. The pleasantries end there. For the next several thousand words, Fallows eviscerated the administration. Here are some excerpts, all quotations. Carter and those closest to him took office in profound ignorance of their jobs. The president seemed to foresee neither the temptations nor the demands of foreign policy, nor the ways to prevent them from stealing his concentration away from other pressing business of his office. He did not know how congressmen talked, worked, and thought how to pressure them without being a bully or flatter them without seeming a fool. If there has been little abuse of power, it may be because they have so little sense of what power is and how it might be exercised. I came to think that Carter believes 50 things, but no one thing. He is a smart man, but not an intellectual in the sense of liking the play of ideas, of pushing concepts to their limits to examine their implications. The piece borders on harsh truths and slight inaccuracies. But it was the first-hand nature of it that made it so damning, especially because Fallows left on good terms. And these highlights are just that, 
a smattering of criticisms among a torrent. In hindsight, if ever there was a turning point in this tragic story, this was it. Chapter 8. Mudslide June 1979 Lest we forget, the nation was still in the midst of the Cold War. The extent of the decline within the Soviet apparatus was still unclear in the West, though there was some hope within the Carter administration that relations were beginning to thaw. Most pressing on the diplomatic agenda was to revive the stalled SALT talk treaties with the Soviets. Most within the administration believed that productive talks were within reach, and there seemed to be a greater level of trust in the U.S. without Kissinger as the point person. But there was one major obstacle from within. Zbig. Quote, relations between Vance and Brzezinski were obviously getting frayed. Brzezinski continued to badger the president to link passage of the SALT Treaty with Soviet behavior in Angola, Zaire, Yemen, and eventually Afghanistan, writes Byrd. Undaunted, President Carter met with Soviet Chairman Brezhnev in Vienna and signed the SALT II agreement designed to establish parity between the nations in nuclear delivery systems and limit the number of multiple warhead missiles. The reality was that the treaty did little to slow the arms race, but the Carter team believed it to be an important step in opening dialogue and transparency between the two countries. Unfortunately, the American public saw it differently. Neither side of the aisle in the U.S. was particularly happy about the negotiations. The right saw Carter as a sellout, and the left saw it as wholly inadequate. Carter's people still needed to ratify the treaty in Congress, but this wasn't Panama, and Carter was beginning to lose influence within his own party. July 1979. Inflation, 11.3%. Unemployment, 5.7%. Carter's approval is 30%. Carter was aware that his grip was slowly slipping on important matters. The Fallows article had shaken the confidence of his internal team, and Zbig and Vance were increasingly at odds, particularly over the SALT talks. In July, a White House pollster and a polarizing figure named Patrick Cadell, whom a Carter associate once referred to as Rasputin, planted a bug in Carter's ear. He suggested a summit with top Democratic leaders and officials from around the country to earnestly diagnose what ailed the nation. The idea was that Carter had taken his eye off the ball pursuing foreign policy and was quickly losing touch with the pulse of the nation. Many were surprised when Carter did indeed take Cadell's advice and cleared the White House calendar. For several days, he gathered with Democratic leaders and listened intently and genuinely to their criticisms and advice. Those in attendance would later remark, somewhat in awe, and how Carter absorbed the criticism and encouraged honest feedback. It was a stunning display of humility and genuine concern for the nation. Here's Byrd, quote, After 10 days on July 14, 1979, Carter came down from Catoctin Mountain Park and spent the next day editing the speech that would ultimately become a turning point in his presidency. He spoke for 33 minutes, end quote. The speech has been referred to both as the malaise speech and the crisis of confidence speech. Either way, the immediate impact of it was palpable, and for a brief moment, the American people were galvanized in support of their president, who was delivering tough love and speaking to them as peers and from the heart. It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even 
than inflation or recession. So I want to speak to you first tonight about a subject even more serious than energy or inflation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. And I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. Carter wrote every single word of the speech himself, and it did resonate for a time with the average American. But the problems that he identified outside of the crisis of confidence were bigger than a momentary motivational speech. There were gas lines. Inflation was brutal. Jobs were being lost. The economic realities were ever-present in the American mind, and they were certainly more important to voters than some conservative regime in Iran or mediocre treaties with the Soviets. People wanted a leader to take hold of domestic affairs and assure them that everything was going to work out. That piece Carter did somewhat tap into, and it came from one particular attendee at the summit who put it bluntly and succinctly to Carter in words that stayed with him. Quote, Mr. President, you are not leading this nation. You're just managing the government. End quote. The reason this moment stuck with Carter and all those in attendance was because it struck at the heart of the problem with Carter's style. So yes, the speech did work for a time, but the harsh economic realities would ultimately prove to be too overwhelming. And like so many other seemingly insignificant moments, the cardigan sweater, scheduling time for tennis, solar panels on the White House, the speech would eventually be woven into a larger loser narrative that Carter was built for small ball and not up to the moment. In the end, the American people didn't want to be leveled with. They just wanted someone to fix things. Oh, by the way, the summit attendee who offered that insightful critique was a newly elected Southern governor named Bill Clinton. August, 1979. Inflation was ripping. This period will forever be studied by economists and whether or not the eventual cure for inflation was worth it or even right will be argued for just as long. Either way, it was clear that double-digit inflation was unsustainable for the American people. As usual, Americans viewed stagflation, a slowdown of economic growth combined with high inflation and rising unemployment, as a uniquely American experience. So naturally, the blame fell squarely on Carter. Now, the truth is, the entire world was being ravaged by inflation. Western Europe, Japan, hyperinflation in parts of Latin America. Of course, it was happening in the Soviet bloc as well, though we just didn't know how bad it was. Carter finally got the message and made a bold call. Now, again, we can litigate this, and unfuckers know that this is a favorite topic of mine. But Carter's call was to select a controversial figure to head the Federal Reserve. Paul Volcker was a big, blustering figure who graduated from Princeton where he wrote his thesis on how to curb inflation after World War II. He was loud, opinionated, and somewhat unpopular. In short, the antithesis of Carter. But Carter was taken by his honesty and was looking to demonstrate leadership on the inflation issue. His old friend Bert Lance chimed in from afar saying, quote, if he appoints Volcker, 
he'll be mortgaging his re-election to the Federal Reserve. How right he was. Inside the White House, there were few supporters. Even Vice President Mondale was nervous about this selection because he understood Volcker's belief system and what was likely to follow. As Byrd writes, quote, the vice president feared that Volcker's predilection for tough monetary policies would cause an unnecessary recession, end quote. Lance and Mondale would both be correct. In addition to multiple staggering rate heights that boosted the prime rate and therefore mortgage rates and everything else tied to Fed rates, Volcker simultaneously constricted money supply by requiring banks to hold larger reserves. Less money on the street and what was available was expensive. It was shock therapy that would eventually pay off, but long after the Carter presidency and well into Reagan's first term. September 1979. It was only a matter of time. The mudslide was in full swing. The coveted position Democrats enjoyed coming into 1977 was looking increasingly bleak. In 1976, the Carter team declined to offer Ted Kennedy a speaking slot at the Democratic Convention. In 1977, Carter refused to push for Kennedy's single-payer health care bill, and the two men clashed publicly about their plans. In January of 1978, a young Joe Biden visited Jimmy Carter in the White House to warn him that Kennedy was making noise about running against Carter in a primary. Still, through it all, Ted Kennedy was one of the most reliable votes in the Senate and often put his personal feelings aside to convince his colleagues to support the president. But by late summer of 1979, Kennedy smelled blood in the water and decided to pick up the mantle of the Kennedy legacy and officially throw his hat into the ring. On September 7th, he paid a visit to the White House residence to personally inform Carter of his intentions. By all accounts, the meeting was cordial, and both men understood the situation. And therefore, I take the course compelled by events and by my commitment to public life. Today, I formally announce that I'm a candidate for president of the United States. Begin was building settlements in the West Bank and thumbing his nose at Carter from abroad. The deposed Shaw was on the run, seeking safe haven while Iran fell quickly under autocratic rule that had access to a substantial weapons cache, courtesy of the United States. The tepid nuclear agreement with the Soviet Union was extremely unpopular. Friction among Carter staffers was palpable and increasing, and Americans were losing jobs, paying exorbitant prices for basic necessities, and waiting in line for gas. Now, Carter was going to have to spend unnecessary time and money facing off against a man who carried the most popular last name in American politics. Fortunately for Carter on this last point, Ted Kennedy was no Bobby and certainly no Jack. So when posed a fairly simple question, well, listen for yourself. Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh... Were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world. October 1979. It was known that Israel possessed nuclear capacity. It just wasn't spoken of or acknowledged. But in October, alarm bells went off throughout the national security state. A satellite designed to detect nuclear activity indicated an explosion deep in the ocean. For weeks, 
the administration worked behind the scenes with allies to determine whether it was real or a malfunction. But as the weeks wore on, it became increasingly clear that a low-yield detonation had indeed occurred, and everyone was fairly certain of its origin. Israel had been running deep-water maneuvers with its partner South Africa in the Indian Ocean. Known as the Vela Incident, named for the satellite detection system, the incident was buried in the official narrative and dismissed publicly to reporters who caught wind of it as a detection error. But for Team Carter, it served as an uneasy reminder that we weren't alone in the arms race. Israel wasn't a truthful partner, and they had aligned with an apartheid government that Carter had sworn to break down. Against the backdrop of a militant Iran, a shaky Soviet pact, and a million other things, the last thing Jimmy Carter needed was Israel playing fast and loose with nuclear weapons and South Africa. It was at this moment that Carter blinked. Ever since the Shah was deposed, David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger had been working behind Carter's back to bring the Shah to the United States. You see, the Shah was sick and in need of treatment and had spent the better part of the year under extreme stress moving from country to country seeking safe harbor. But every other country knew that Iran would retaliate in some way against any nation that offered refuge to a man they were determined to bring home and bring to justice. Now, it was true that the Shah was sick and in fact dying, but Kissinger and Rockefeller weren't motivated by compassion. See, over the years, the Shah had funneled billions of dollars from Iran through Chase Bank in New York, where Rockefeller served as president. The status of these funds was very much in question, but there was no question that Iran wanted it back. Meanwhile, Kissinger was taking every opportunity to make Z-Big look foolish, and the pressure campaign on Carter directly and through the trilateral emissaries had reached a fever pitch. Even Hamilton Jordan and Cy Vance thought bringing the Shaw to the United States was the right thing to do. In this moment, when so many things were going on, Carter finally relented and allowed the Shaw to travel to New York for treatment. Presciently and tragically, however, in a meeting with his foreign policy advisors, Carter said, quote, what are you guys going to advise me to do if they overrun our embassy and take our people hostage, end quote. Less than two weeks later, that's exactly what happened. November 1979. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy, fought the Marine Guards for three hours, overpowered them, and took dozens of American hostages. Aside from Zbig's obsession with the Soviet Union, if there was one weakness on the foreign policy team, it was in the area of Iran. By all accounts, our diplomats on the ground had a very keen idea of what was bubbling below the surface in main cities like Tehran. But the Carter team was content with the status quo under the Shah. Carter's only determined policy was to cajole the Shah into improving his record on human rights, a message that the Shah received with some annoyance, as Carter's Republican predecessors never seemed to care. Both Zbig and Vance, quote, urged Carter to make Iran an exception to the administration's new policy of restricting arms sales to non-democratic regimes with poor human rights records. Over the next two years, the administration gave a green light to most of the Shah's weapons purchases, end quote. So as Byrd writes further, in retrospect, quote, all of this was a mistake. In fact, the administration did have insight into what was happening on the ground and in the streets of Iran. U.S. Ambassador to Iran William Sullivan had been sounding the alarm for months and getting nowhere. 
Vance and Zbig appeared to either downplay or just outright ignore his warnings. But Sullivan was no shrinking violet and would frequently tear into his colleagues laced with profanity and eventually take a go-it-alone strategy. But it was too little, too late. While Khomeini had not sanctioned the embassy takeover, the students who seized it were responding to his calls to action, and he subsequently embraced the situation. He immediately understood the significance of the American bargaining chips. Initially, 66 Americans were held captive. Some escaped, others were released, but 52 remained. For the next 444 days, every news channel carried images and updates of the 52 captured Americans, morning, day, and night. December 1979. 1979 wasn't through with Jimmy Carter yet. In the midst of the hostage situation in Iran, Zbig forwarded a disturbing intelligence report to the president. The Russians had moved a significant number of military advisors to Afghanistan and appeared to be ready for a full-scale invasion. Carter was in disbelief. With the SALT II treaty hopes barely alive in Congress, an unprovoked invasion by the Soviets would put the nail in the coffin and signal a troubling turn in Soviet aggression that appeared previously to be mellowing. In reality, the Soviets were injecting themselves into a situation in which they already played a significant role. As Byrd writes, quote, when Soviet troops were airlifted into Kabul on Christmas morning, ironically, they did so in order to depose a ruthless communist in favor of a moderate communist who might have more credibility in Afghan society, end quote. You see, the Soviets saw this as kind of an internal matter that would be quick and easy. Sound familiar? They had no idea that their occupation would not only last 10 years, but they would have to retreat with nothing to show for it at the end of their empire. Next week, the final installment, the end of an era, and an epilogue.